From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Molly Kaplan, your host for this episode. The COVID-19 pandemic has brought economic devastation to people across the country. And in the face of staggering unemployment numbers, millions of renters now face eviction, a situation made even more dire by the global health crisis. Congress responded by instating an eviction moratorium for more than 12 million rental units across the country, but that moratorium expired on July 24th. Experts now say that 30 to 40 million renters across the country are at risk of losing their homes. ACLU senior staff attorney Sandra Park has been monitoring this eviction crisis since the start of the pandemic. She's litigated discriminatory eviction policies in the U.S. for almost two decades, and we're excited to have her here today to explain the latest. Sandra, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Molly. It's great to be here. Sandra, I wanted to start at the beginning of the current crisis that we're in with COVID-19. So basically talking about what it looked like from the start in March and how the um, how eviction sort of came into your sights. Sure. Well, as you mentioned, I've been working on evictions as an issue, as a gender justice and racial justice issue for many years at the ACLU. But once the pandemic hit, we knew that we were facing a crisis that of mass evictions. We saw lockdowns in many parts of the country uh, starting in March, and those lockdowns were immediately shutting down businesses and schools and causing people to lose their jobs. And once that happened, we knew that evictions were sure to come. Even before the pandemic, we had 20 million renter households spending way more than their uh, share of income on rent. And by the April 1st rent deadline, it was already estimated that a quarter of Americans could not make their full payment. And so once we saw those numbers coming in, we knew that we had to take action and very comprehensive, meaningful action to stop mass evictions around the country. And that's from a litigation perspective, but Congress did try and come up with a solution. Can you talk about what that solution looked like and where it fell short? Sure. So in late March, Congress passed and President Trump signed the Federal CARES Act, um, which I think most people know for, you know, the extension of unemployment benefits, the stimulus payments, um, and other measures. But importantly, it did include a measure on evictions, um, that it enacted a partial moratorium on evictions Uh, for certain forms of federally subsidized or financed housing. Uh, That eviction moratorium was limited in scope. It didn't cover most renters, and it expired on July 24th. Um, And so, you know, those protections were important, but they don't apply anymore, and they did not cover all of the renters that desperately needed them. So now that we're months into this pandemic, the unemployment crisis is not drastically improved and the one stopgap measure has expired. Where are we now? What is the current state of affairs in terms of evictions? The Federal CARES Act expired in July and a lot of the moratorium that the states had adopted have now expired as well. The big development on September 1 was that the CDC issued an order pursuant to its public health authority, stopping evictions nationwide in certain circumstances. And the order applies from the date of its publication, which we expect to be on September 4th through the end of the year. And the evictions that it targets are evictions where a tenant has not paid their rent, and they will need to be able to certify that they are under certain income requirements, that they have lost their income, that they will become homeless if they're evicted, 
and some other requirements as well. So it's an important step forward in that it does protect a large number of tenants and it recognizes the public health harms of eviction during this time, but it's not as protective as we would want to see. It doesn't stop all evictions. So if you're being evicted for reasons other than non-payment of rent, which we have seen many of during this COVID time, it won't apply to you. It doesn't address the huge issue of back rent. So yes, it's important that tenants are not being evicted during this time, but they're still accumulating back rent and that burden will still stay on them despite the protection from eviction at this time. And then the other issue I see is that it's likely that landlords will challenge the order. And so we don't know in court how the order will stand up yet. And so I think it's more important than ever that Congress act to pass legislation that provides rental relief for tenants and their landlords to address the back rent issue. And also that Congress pass its own eviction moratorium nationwide so that tenants have more security that evictions are not going to move forward during the pandemic. And what would that look like? What would renter relief look like? Is that the government basically just covering that money so that everybody is sort of whole and has a fresh start? Yes, I think that's, you know, one way people have been thinking about it. Um, It could be partial rent payments. At the state and local level, there have been rent relief programs, but they are really inadequate to cover the rent that tenants owe. But yes, essentially, it would be a way to let tenants be able to pay their rents and allow landlords to recover some of the rent that's been due to them. And I'm curious, you know, you've been working on evictions for a long time, Sandra, but this is unprecedented in terms of being during a pandemic. What does it mean? What are the health implications for someone who is getting evicted right now, being thrown on the street? Yes, I mean, I think that's been one of the most concerning aspects of all of this. You know, eviction itself has serious health consequences, even in the best of times. But when we're in a pandemic where we are all told that staying at home is often the safest measure, um, forcing people out either on the streets or in shelters where people are, again, being housed communally, just exacerbates the public health consequences of eviction. Have you ever seen or are you aware of any eviction crisis like this in our history? Is this unprecedented? I think it is unprecedented in terms of the scope and how nationwide this issue is going to be, both in cities, in rural areas. You know, it's a widespread issue given how serious unemployment and economic fallout has been from the pandemic. And I think we're going to be seeing this play out, unfortunately, over many months and years that, you know, we need desperately to take measures to try to at least mitigate and if not prevent those consequences from happening. I'm curious if you can walk us through what an eviction looks like. What are the collateral consequences? It's not just the day of you are evicted and then you have to find a place to live. There are all these sort of ballooning consequences around an eviction. And this is something you've worked on in in many instances besides the pandemic. Can you walk us through a little bit about what sort of, okay, day of you're evicted, but then how is school affected? How is your job affected? Can you vote? Sure. Um, So I'll start with actually a little bit about the legal process, which is, you know, there is a legal process people are entitled to before they get an eviction judgment. 
Many tenants do not participate in that process for a variety of reasons. They may not get adequate notice of the process. They may simply not be able to participate because they have too much going on in their lives. With the pandemic, they may not be able to go to court safely. Um, And so there is a legal process that's supposed to happen, but we know that in many cases, it's not a fair process. And ultimately, a judge can order uh, an eviction That is usually carried out by some official, often sheriffs, um, who will come on the day of the execution of the eviction and lock out the family from the home. There are different state laws in terms of, you know, what notice you're given, how much, like how you can take your property out. And so it's, you know, it's a very devastating process that day. And also just staying on the day of, I know that North Carolina, for example, has these bond hearings where basically to be able to contest the eviction, you actually have to prove that you can you have to hold that money, like the sum of what you owe, so that if you lose, that money is is offered up. But that seems like a basically a pay-to-play option. Is that true in other states, too? That the way to play into the legal system, you have to have the money to begin with? Yes, it's often the case that you need to um, be able to be in a position to pay some form of um, bond or other fee in order to continue to contest or litigate um, your eviction through the process. And that, again, depends on state law. Um, But it's obviously a huge burden on people who are already behind in rent and, you know, means that for many of them, they're not able to fully participate in the legal process. All right. So legal process already contesting it, very problematic. Yes. And I think COVID has just made that, you know, many times more complicated. And there are people who cannot participate in the remote hearings. They may not have the technology, even if they have the technology. Kids are home from school. Maybe they don't have daycare, childcare options. Right. Exactly. Um, There are all the, you know, difficulties that I think we're all experiencing. And then there's also the issue of, you know, if you're doing it via Zoom, how are you going to introduce your evidence? How are you going to actually effectively be questioned or question others? There's a lot of issues that people have had no experience with before that has made it a much more inaccessible process. Mm. But yeah, so, you know, there's the day of the eviction itself. And then in terms of what happens in the days, months, years after, there are very long-term consequences to eviction. It affects your ability to um, work, depending on where you live, whether you're able to go to your work, whether you're able to access that through transportation. It affects your children's school options, obviously. And there's a lot of law about, you know, whether your kids can remain in the same schools, but that's a whole other complication depending on where you end up. There's the issue of health just generally, you know, whether you have access to the same medical facilities that you did before. And then one of the issues we've long worked on is the um, what's referred to as a scarlet E, um, scarlet eviction, which is basically that tenants are blacklisted because they have a prior eviction filing on their record. And in effect, that could mean you are evicted for life because you are shut out of future housing opportunities. Um, and this might be even, you know, if you have an eviction case filed against you that you end up winning and defeating, um, that those eviction filings are still used by many tenant screening companies to screen out tenants. Some years ago, 
a tenant in Washington state was facing eviction because she had experienced domestic violence in her home. And she was successful in beating the eviction because um, in Washington state, landlords are not allowed to evict people because they are experiencing domestic violence. But the fact that the landlord had filed that case against her was a problem for her for many, many years. Uh, She was denied again and again because she had that eviction filing on her record. We really are concerned that these collateral consequences of eviction filings will just be 100 times more magnified in the COVID era where we know many people are going to be facing eviction and are not able to contest them and will have them on their records. And then there are the intangible consequences that are really hard to measure, like losing a connection with your community. But actually one that is very tangible is we are coming into a general election in November. How does being evicted, losing your address, affect your ability to vote? Well, voting is a right that is very much tied to where you live. So once where you live is jeopardized, your ability to exercise your right to vote is as well. You know, there are very complicated rules in most jurisdictions about registration. When you have to register by, you may fall into um, a gap in time where it's hard for you to re-register to vote in your new area. Um, You're going to have to figure out things like your polling place, There may be issues with your ID, if that's required in your jurisdiction, not matching your voter registration. And then right now, of course, many places are looking to empower people to vote by mail. And how that will work if you've been evicted from the home um, where your ballot is sent or where your registration is, I think will present serious challenges to anyone who is evicted um, in fully exercising their right to vote. I'm also curious about who is the most affected by evictions. And even pre-pandemic, you know, the ACLU's Women's Rights Project and the Data Analytics team released a report talking about how Black women are disproportionately affected. How are you bringing that lens into the current evictions crisis? Yes. So one of the central reasons I've been working on eviction as a gender justice and racial justice issue is because of the disproportionate effect on women and particularly Black women. We built on research from Matt Desmond and Princeton's Eviction Lab to look at the data. And it's clear that Black women renters had evictions filed against them at twice the rate of white renters in most states. And we also have been very concerned about how that has those long-term consequences that we talked about in terms of life opportunities as well as future housing opportunities. And then another aspect that we've looked at is in some states, Black women renters are actually more likely to have an eviction filed against them that is ultimately dismissed. Um, So in other words, that they are having filings that will harm those long-term opportunities even when they win those cases. Um, And that is very concerning, I think, from just a fundamental fairness perspective. And so we've been concerned about eviction and, you know, ensuring that those harms are not disproportionately felt by Black women um, for many years. And it's why we've prioritized it as an issue. Do we understand why? Is this, does this come down to pure racial discrimination? Is, is there more to it? I think there are many levels. Um, you know, it's both a function and I think a cause of the economic and social inequalities that we see generally when it comes to employment, 
access to government benefits, all of those concerns. And it's, you know, one of the things that I think we center in our work is that eviction is also a cause of poverty. And so that's another reason why it's very important to us to address it, just as we would address access to employment or education. And so it's both a reflection of other inequalities that are functioning in our society. It's also a function of the system of mass incarceration we have where Black men have been locked up disproportionately. And what Matt Desmond has talked about is Black women are being locked out, um, that they are heads of households and are responsible for housing their families. But the same inequalities that are affecting Black people generally then also impact them when it comes to evictions. Hmm. You know, I'm curious, it seems like the pandemic is exacerbating what has been an existing problem for a long time. I actually wanted to pivot to how you got involved with this work and how you came to it and how you realized that this was a true gender justice issue, because you are, after all, an attorney with the Women's Rights Project. Sure. Um, So when I came to the ACLU 13 years ago already, I was primarily interested in working on issues of discrimination affecting survivors of gender-based violence, such as domestic violence and sexual assault. And the number one need that domestic violence survivors consistently identify is housing. And it struck me as a real gap in the legal landscape at that time in the gender justice community, that there wasn't the focus on housing advocacy and litigation Mm. from that community. And so we really began building up work to challenge various forms of housing discrimination that domestic violence victims and sexual assault victims um, experience. On the domestic violence side, it's common practice of landlords to hold survivors responsible for the abuse that they experience and evict them based on that abuse. And so we have been active in challenging that type of discrimination um, for many years, um, including challenging city ordinances, often called nuisance ordinances, that actually penalize tenants for calling for help and pressuring landlords to evict tenants who call 911. Which, P.S., is completely counterintuitive. Like, if you're in trouble, you would think that calling 911 is not only good for you, but good for your community if you're under a threat. Definitely. You know, I think so much of the messaging that has gone out to domestic violence survivors for many, many years is, you know, please come forward, please report, please seek help. And these nuisance ordinances are one of the starkest examples of punishing survivors for actually seeking, you know, emergency assistance and protection. But unfortunately, those laws exist around the country. We are actually litigating against one right now and have done a bunch of litigation on those laws. And so that, you know, is sort of the genesis of my interest in the work. But I think once I started learning about evictions in the context of gender-based violence, I saw that it was also a broader issue for women of color generally, particularly around this eviction blacklisting issue. That's the Scarlet E. The Scarlet E, right. Um, And understanding that tenants face the inability to um, access new housing because they've been evicted um, because of these records. And, you know, I think many of us have been concerned for a long time about criminal records and how criminal records block people from housing and job opportunities 
And one of my goals has been to really highlight how eviction records play a similar role in being a barrier, particularly for women of color in accessing housing opportunities. I also wonder, and I'm curious what you think, Sandra, if you think that the fact that this is, um, there can be no blame, like it is nobody's fault that they don't have a job right now or they're economically affected by the pandemic. And I wonder if that is sort of reawakened an awareness and an empathy. Have, Have you seen that at all? I I definitely think that. I think, unfortunately, you know, sometimes uh, when um, people are being evicted, um, they are generally blamed for not being able to pay their rent. And, you know, I think there are a lot of social factors that go into that as well. But I certainly think with COVID and the the fact that so many people are unemployed um, and that it's a result of a pandemic that um, people are now understanding that the inability to pay rent um, should not mean that uh, someone in their family um, has no housing. Um, and so I think that's that's a real awakening for many people. And, you know, I guess the other thing to keep in mind is, you know, the rent is still owed. And I think that's a huge issue for many tenants. But that doesn't mean that the remedy to the rent being owed is that a family is kicked out of their home right now. Right, because technically it doesn't, I mean, a portion of landlords are mom and pop landlords who also need the money. They owe property taxes. They owe money on mortgages. Can we sort of pivot back to solutions? Because the solution seems to benefit nobody by evicting somebody. It's questionable whether that unit would be refilled right now. I'm curious what you've seen as far as solutions. I know you mentioned relief as one of them. Are there other solutions on the table that not just during the pandemic, but could be holistic remedies for for this eviction crisis and also what we saw before the pandemic? I certainly think rental relief is the fundamental measure that we need to get past whether at the federal or state levels, because it's certainly true that landlords also need rent relief because they often have tenants who cannot pay. So I think that is the fundamental measure that we need to put in place. But we also need to be thinking about our housing policy as a whole. If you think about many government benefits that we have for low-income people, people can access them if their income meets the requirements. That's simply not true for housing. For Section 8 vouchers or public housing or other forms of um, subsidized housing, there are many, many, many thousands of people who meet the income requirements to qualify for that housing, but will wait years and sometimes decades um, on lists to access that form of housing benefit. And so I think, you know, we have treated housing almost as more as a luxury rather than a right. And I think we need to fundamentally think about our overarching housing policy for people who cannot afford it. And, you know, so it's a, it's a bigger discussion beyond COVID. Um, but I certainly think rent relief is immediately needed. And I know you're very busy right now. So I imagine there is a litigation strategy going on. What is the litigation strategy? So, you know, there are a few different strategies people are engaged in, including um, and that we are investigating as well. One is really looking at what the processes for eviction are right now. And we know that a lot of courts are moving forward with evictions in ways that we think take a shortcut on people's rights. 
And so really pressing forward to ensure that tenants are able to access the due process rights and other legal rights that are afforded to them. We've been filing briefs in Missouri and in Massachusetts um, on issues relating to um, eviction cases moving forward. Our affiliates have also been very active on this. For example, the ACLU of Idaho has been working on guaranteeing the right to a jury trial in an eviction case, which is a right that, you know, many tenants do not have, although we think they should. And they've been successful so far in their litigation on that issue. What does that solve for, having a jury, rather than, I think it's magistrates in some areas. Right. Well, it's the same, you know, reason that we might think we want a jury trial in other contexts, like a criminal trial, um, that you want a jury of your peers to consider the issue that is before the court. And, you know, that right is guaranteed in Idaho, as it is in many other states, but is often not implemented. And that's, I think, in part because tenants' rights have not been considered as important as landlords' rights in those contexts. Interesting. I'm also curious, either as a voter or just a person in my community, are there things that I can do to help people who are in need? I mean, I think one point you made is that once the eviction process is underway, it's almost, it's not too late, but it's very late in the process. So what are things that just a normal person can do who's not a lawyer or a congressperson or the president? (laughs) Sure. I think, you know, this is certainly an issue that is going to be coming up in a lot of different um, policy arenas. And I think that, you know, asking how your different representatives are dealing with evictions in your community um, and making that a priority in terms of any outreach you do to representatives, whether it's at the federal level or at the state or local level is important. Um, I think for many of our neighbors, they could use support in, you know, on some basic measures. Um, It could be even helping people with thinking about advocacy for them, whether it's trying to work out a payment plan with their landlord for tenants to organize in their community to have those communications with landlords about people who aren't able to pay their rent. That's one thing that I think many landlords are realizing they need to be more open to is payment plans because As you said, there are many tenants who aren't going to be able to pay rent, even if they are able to evict their family, whether they're going to be able to get um, a new family into their rental unit is an open question in many communities. Um, So that's another measure. And I think, you know, others have been uh, engaged in mutual aid um, for folks who are facing eviction, whether it's helping them when they are in their new housing situation I'm helping with temporary housing and helping with just the basic fundamentals of, you know, what you need for daily living that so often you lose in the eviction process. Well, Sandra, thank you so much. We'll continue to monitor it and really hope that this crisis has a solution in the near future for people who are under that level of strain. Thank you so much for joining us and good luck with all of the work that you continue to do around it. Thank you very much. 
Thanks so much for listening. We've got some exciting news here at At Liberty. Starting on September 15th, we're launching a special 2020 voting series called At the Polls. This will be in addition to our normal At Liberty episodes. Each week, we're answering a new question about voting rights in the lead up to the presidential election. If you have a question you'd like us to answer, call us and leave a message at 212-549-2558. That's 212-549-2558. Or email podcast at aclu.org. That's podcast at aclu.org. We so look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, stay strong.